0: I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in, and enjoy! Hello everyone, happy Monday, and welcome back to the A Crescent Podcast with me, your host, Leanne Lindsay, and this week is... An incredibly special interview for me with perhaps one of the most fascinating human beings I've ever had the privilege of meeting. And that is Jane Amelia Larson. And she is an actress, a voiceover artist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Driving the Saudis, published by Simon & Schuster. She was also on the People Magazine top book picks for that book, Driving the Saudis. She has a hands-on experience of story development and production, has been on producing teams of several award-winning films and plays, and is a creative content producer for business development and branding. She is also a proud CASA volunteer and working on a new book about her advocacy work with youth in foster care, which is tentatively titled Give Me Shelter, and This week is a little different because it's going to be a two-part episode. So this one you're listening to now will be part one. And then after that will be part number two because we get into two different topics. So part one, Jane Amelia and I are discussing her book Driving the Saudis, which I read and fell absolutely in love with. It's really so coincidental or providential how Jane Amelia and I met. We actually met at a mutual friend's birthday party and her and I got to talking and instantly clicked. She ended up telling me about her book which I bought and read within a day. It was so amazing and I'm just so honored to have her on to share her story. To give a little bit of a preface, Driving the Saudis is about Jane Amelia's experience as a chauffeur for the Saudi royal family during one of their summer vacations in Los Angeles. And the book is absolutely magical, otherworldly, and a beautiful look at life within the Saudi family, which is something that is so so rare and she was in such a unique position to see behind the veil in a sense because she was the only female chauffeur out of hundreds of chauffeurs who would work for the Saudi royal family when they would come to Los Angeles and so as a woman she was allowed access and entry into some of the back rooms. She developed a very personal relationship with many of the servants. And as I said before, this story is completely captivating and magical. And I highly, highly recommend getting the book and reading through it entirely because there is just so many wild, unbelievable, hysterical moments that she shares in this book. And it is Truly one of my favorite books and probably will be one of my favorite books until the day I die. It is that special. So I will make sure to link Driving the Saudis in the show notes so you guys can find it easily. As I mentioned, this is a two-part interview because the second half of the interview, we shift gears and begin to discuss Jane Amelia's involvement in an organization known as CASA which stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates, and these are volunteers who work with youth in the foster care system to help them find the right family, get a good education, and so much more. And that really is a discussion all on its own in and of itself, and I really wanted to honor it in that way by giving it its own episode. So, for those interested in hearing more from Jane Amelia after this interview, definitely tune in to part two to learn all about her involvement in CASA and how you can also get involved in helping a foster care child through this incredible organization. But with that, please enjoy this interview with Jane Amelia Larson on her New York Times best-selling book, Driving the Saudis. Jane Amelia, welcome so much to the Accrescent podcast. I'm so happy to be connecting with you again. We've only met in person once, but it really left such an impression on me. And so I'm so grateful to have you on.
1: Leanne, I am thrilled to be on your podcast. <laughs> really, I am. I'm just so happy. Um, I think you're a really smart lady and I'm looking forward to having this conversation.
0: Thank you. Well, I, you know, I was telling you before, this one for the listeners is maybe going to be a little different than my interviews with doctors, where it's a pretty clear cut discussion. We're going to talk definitely about your book, Driving the Saudis, which again left a huge impression on me. But I'm just so curious about your life and your drive and your passion and your inspiration. And so I think more than anything, this is just going to be an inspirational interview where we can really maybe take a peek into someone else's life and just see how you've navigated some really, really unique and oftentimes heavy experiences. So I'm just so excited.
1: You know, I'm I'm so curious, before we start into the me, I, of course, I want to talk about you, but I, you've told me how much my book, Driving the Saudis, resonated with you. But why? I mean, I'm always curious why it happens. I'm thrilled that it does. And And I I hear it from other people, thankfully, but it, can you tell me briefly what, what it is that just grabbed you?
0: Sure. It was like an LA fairy tale. And I know that sounds so cliche, but (laughs) it, it was like a modern day fairy tale stepping into really, you were such an incredible storyteller. And I'm sure you hear that so often, but I mean, I felt like I was you going through this journey and it, it was twofold. On the one, I was just completely captivated that there are people who live this way, who are having these experiences, and I'm sure we'll get into it. It, it was just almost like, how can this be real? It, it was a true story, but to me, it almost felt fiction. And then number two, just knowing that it was a true story and seeing what you had to go through, I just was completely awestruck because in my mind, I was like, a oh, week two, I'd be out of there. I'd be like, not putting up with this, not pushing through it. This is not worth whatever's coming. But that's so for me, that's really what it was. And so that's why I get so I always want to hear what was it in your mm-hmm. mind every day when you woke up? How did mm-hmm. you keep mm-hmm. yourself showing up to that? Was it the mystery and the fascination of the situation?
1: Well, as you know, um I took the job thinking it was something else. What the way it all came about was I had I had been a producer with a production company working for director and I was also an actress so I was juggling all the time. I was juggling acting jobs with producing work and working 90 hours a week and feeling like I wasn't able to focus as much on on really developing my career and getting the roles that I wanted and doing all those things that were really important to me to make to, I guess to really, to speak to the artist in me. A lot of times I felt like I was just solving other people's problems and making it easier for them. And I did it really, really well. And then I became indispensable, but I also knew in my heart, you're never really indispensable. In fact, you are very dispensable and sometimes that shows up in a really terrible way. But so I think, Decided I had to focus on just what I wanted to do. So I left a pretty secure and cushy job that allowed me a certain amount of flexibility, but not a huge amount of flexibility. And I started, I just hung out on my own, doing my own thing. And pretty much I quickly blew all the money that I had saved. It just happened really fast. And I wasn't booking any jobs. I had done a lot of voiceovers, but they, the big ones weren't coming into me. And a friend of mine said, well, you should be a chauffeur. And I thought, well, really? Well, I don't even like to drive that much. I mean, why would I be a chauffeur? And I don't (laughs) like driving. (laughs) Yeah, in LA, it's just, it's like a terrible thing. It's not that fun. And he said, no, you can make a lot of money. You can have a lot of free time. You can take meetings. You can do phone calls. You can take jobs between things. And he really, uh, like, Teased it out. And then I met a couple of his friends that did it, and they all seemed to be making a boatload of money and not really working that hard for it. These were guys, mind you, right? And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go try chauffeuring and see what happens. So I applied to, at that time, um, because there was no Uber or Lyft, there was no rideshare, I applied for like a premier black car service. And I was one of the very few female drivers and I immediately started to do really well because people requested me and I was kind of like a concierge in a car and I um I knew the the nicest hotels and the nicest restaurants so all of my entertainment background kind of worked out for me in that regard but even so it was nowhere near what I was hoping it was going to be it was long long hours it was lonely um, there were some really basic things that were just awful. For instance, when you're chauffeuring in the middle of the night, there's no place to pee. <laughs> you you're, like you're a hundred miles from home and you just have to go to like a dirty Starbucks if it's open or a gas station. And also as a woman, it was often really not that safe. I, I started to be hyper vigilant because st- Things happened that made me uncomfortable and always trying to figure out how I could make sure that I could do the job, feel safe, get home to do the things that I wanted to do. And that started to like not work out that great. And then another friend said, oh, you could drive for a private family if you want. And I thought, oh, well, private family would be nice. You know, it would be different. I wouldn't have to pick up these strange guys at the airport. And I wouldn't have to drive to Vegas in the middle of the night or Palm Springs or any of that stuff. Because there's, there's an expression in chauffeuring called as directed, A.D. And that means you get in the car and you don't know where you're going to go because the client could say, take me to the Beverly Hills hotel. And then after that, I want to go to Palm Springs. And then after that, I want to come back to the Beverly hotels to, to that hotel. And then after that, I want to go to Las Vegas mm-hmm. and you can't say, Oh no, actually I don't want to do that. Uh, I, uh, I, I, in fact, I, I can't, I'm off at eight. That's not the way it works in, with a premier car service. Once you're in the car and it's an AD job, you're on until the client says, go away. So I was already fried. Right. And my friend says, you can make a lot of money for this private family. It's going to be a tough job. It's going to be seven weeks, 24, seven, but it's for the royal family. I thought, Ooh, for the royal family. And then he said, for the Saudi royal family. That Saudi royal family. Who? What? What is? Who are they? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I had no idea. I I just had no idea. And but I got the job, and there was no vetting process. Zero <laughs> zip. They didn't. They didn't even meet me. Uh, all it just. I just had to have a clean license, which I did. And uh, I got the job. It was cash. It was seven days a week for seven weeks straight, 24-7. And when I say 24-7, I mean 24-7, around the clock. I was told I was hired to drive a young princess because her parents were quite westernized. And that was true in part. But actually, when we went to the airport to to pick up all the Saudis, I had a, a like... Um, a nameplate sign, right, that you see at the airport with people like the chauffeurs holding up their signs, and mine said Michelle. So I thought, oh, okay, so my princess's name must be Michelle. And I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm asking for Michelle, and they're all ignoring me. Uh, I was the only female chauffeur. There were like 35 or so other guys, and I'm the I'm the only woman. And they're all and they're all kind of giggling and laughing at me, too. Like, what's she doing asking for Michelle? And then finally, it turns out that actually Michelle was the royal hairdresser. I was assigned to drive a man <laughs> who was a royal hairdresser. And he was awful. He was an awful, awful person. I and mean, because you read my book, you know he was just dastardly. And he used to shriek at me the whole time. He smoked, chain smoked in the car, would not let me open the windows. And also he gambled. And he wanted to go to Palm Springs every night. And he would uh, you know, I did this as a one-woman show first, so I'll give you a little impersonation of, of how he was, because this is literally the way he was. He'd say, I want to go gambling now. He needs smoke. <laughs> and then you say, radio up, radio up. And then, always, he, the, somehow, it was always the song, I Will Survive by Gloria Gator, that came on the radio. And he would sing along, I Will Survive, I Will Survive, yay! Radio up! And so that was just terrible, really, really terrible. <laughs> And
0: it was so ironic because you're like, I don't know if I will survive. I don't know.
1: No, I, I exactly. And so and that job, because I was driving him, I hate uh, he would do the princess's hair in the morning and then he would prepare her for evening, uh, like around four or five. And then he would want to go to Palm Springs rush hour, drive to Palm Springs and then come back at four or five or six in the morning, depending if he was winning or not. And I would catch a few hours sleep and I would have to go back to the hotel because I wasn't only assigned to him. I also drove a lot of the servant girls. I ended up becoming very friendly with the servants. They were lovely, lovely women. They were from Eritrea and Yemen and Egypt. And they worked 24-7 for the family, but 24-7 for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. Not like me, um, only doing it for a few weeks. And then I did end up driving a young princess Uh, She had come actually late on the trip, but I did end up driving her, and I drove her nanny. And they, the nanny, her nanny was just fantastic. She was a very educated, very smart, lovely, lovely woman. And I learned a lot about what was going on. And as you know from reading the book, that um, when I was driving the servants, what they were doing is following the princess and her friends, the older princess, the princess mother... And her friends, while they went shopping on Rodeo Drive or on Robertson, and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, they would clean out stores and then all the all the presents are all, you know, all the gifts, all the shoes, all the uh, all the handbags would be tossed into the back of a SUV on this, um, in this long line of limos and SUVs and Mercedes and BMWs, um, there was an SUV in the back. They would throw all the booty into that SUV that would make periodic runs to the hotel to dump off the stuff, to bring back the empty SUV, where they just do it all over again from store to store to store. When they weren't shopping, they were having plastic surgery. And I mean, all kinds of plastic surgery. They were doing not only their noses and their breasts, but they were doing liposuction. They were doing ass implants. They were doing calf implants, all this crazy, crazy stuff. And people have asked me, why, why did they, do they do that when the Saudi women are covered up with the black abaya and the hijab and the veil when they're when they're out of their own home? But what people don't realize is that when they're in their own home, around their friends, around their family, they show off their beautiful couture clothing, their beautiful new lips, their beautiful new nose, their, uh, their lovely new breasts. They show off that stuff just like regular women do. And also the Saudi women that I drove here in Los Angeles, they did not cover they look like beautiful Persian women dressed to the nines with lots of makeup and long hair and beautiful long nails and high heels. Uh, they just looked fantastic. They looked like a bunch of fashion models all the time. But the servants who work for them, also Muslim, were or in general, they were Muslim. There were a few that were uh, that were uh, that were Christian. But even the Christians actually wore hijab. But all the Muslim servants were devout and they all covered. They covered their hair. Some of them covered their face. They always covered their body all the way from right to the bottom of their wrists, all the way to their ankles. They never dressed in any immodest clothing whatsoever. But the Saudi women and the girls dressed like they were going nightclubbing all the time. Um, and <laughs> and the the weird thing about that is that uh, that that kind of threw me for a little while because i I just couldn't I couldn't reconcile their very cloistered way of life with the amount of conspicuous consumption, <laughs> the massive amounts of wealth that were spent, um, and also um how they treated their servants. they treated their servants like slaves, and essentially, mm-hmm. The women were slaves. They worked 24-7. They were like indentured servants. They were paid a very small amount. And I quickly figured out through the help of the one one very articulate nanny that they, most of the young girls were sending money back home to their families. They were supporting whole families back home. And hmm. um, once I learned they that. They
0: just gave up their whole life.
1: Yeah. And not only that, it was an honor to work the royal family for them. They were probably making more money than anybody else in their family ever had. They were traveling the world, they were staying in the best hotels, but um, they were sending things to their they were sending money to their families back home. And then also once I figured out what was going on when the princesses weren't shopping, I would take the servants to the 99 cent store and they would load up on little things for their nieces and nephews or their brothers and sisters. And uh, they. I, the first time I took them to the 99 Nine cent store, they just they just screamed with glee. They were so thrilled, you know. And if you've <laughs> ever been to the 99 Nine cent store, I mean, it, it, you know, it's a colorful place, uh, you know, and they do have amazing things if you know what you're looking for. But they were, they were buying all the trinkets that you would hope, you know, like the flip flops and the little little toys and the spinners and all that stuff that you buy for little kids. And they were probably sending all that stuff back to Egypt or to Yemen or to Eritrea or, you know, all the countries where they're from.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in the book, you mentioned that you asked, I can't remember who specifically, but you asked them about that dichotomy of so when you're in your country you all wear the cover-ups but when you're here for some reason you don't how do you justify that how do you explain that but i don't remember what their response was
1: well there was one particular princess who she was um uh she was uh, uh, i call her princess amira and that wasn't actually her name i changed all the names in the book i had to do that but princess amira explained to me that they do not cover when they're in the united states because they don't want to draw attention to themselves, especially since the, as she said it, since the unfortunate incident of September 11. So they did not cover when they uh, when they travel out of Saudi Arabia. Number one, they're not required to by law. They're only that law applies when they're in the kingdom, and also they want to assimilate when they're in France or in Spain or or uh, here in the United States, in Beverly Hills, or in London, or, or in New York, or in Aspen, because they go to Aspen, they do not cover. And they don't have a problem with it. They don't have a problem with that paradox that, that to be a modest Muslim woman, you're asked to cover. And the interesting thing about that, if you remember, is that the reason why you cover is so that you do not tempt men.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not even to show uh, your devotion, although that for some women that is part of it. It is to prove their devotion to God that they that they embrace modesty, in, and that's an expression of their devotion to God. But more importantly, it is so that you do not tempt men because men cannot control themselves. And that it is your responsibility if you somehow incite them or if you provoke them by exposing yourself in any way that that makes them so besides themselves that they have to take you and rape you, then that's your fault. So uh and also if you expose yourself to a man inappropriately, a man who is not your mother, I'm sorry, please forgive me a man that is not your brother, husband, father, or son, you should not show your private parts to him. And when I say private, I mean your face,
0: no.
1: right? Or okay. or your ankles. Uh, you you must not show those parts to him because it provokes him. It be, means you are, you are immodest. And it also means that you are doing dishonor to the man that owns you. The man that owns you, if you're not married, is your father. If your father is dead and your husband is dead, the man that owns you is your son,
0: wow. even
1: if that son is five years old.
0: That's wild. So then, how? I know, I know, I know. Okay, I know. Yeah, we know, we could go down for days but, okay, but, okay, But the,
1: but but one thing I want to say about that, in spite of all those all those differences, in spite of the millions and millions of dollars and that and the the hordes of servants what i discovered about the saudi women is that they're like most women they care about their families they want love they want affection they want you they have values they have family values they they want to have a close inner circle that supports them they're no different than any other women in that regard and they they also have the same insecurities as all women have i i know i have this and perhaps you do too i wonder am am i pretty enough if i change this would i be would i feel better if i, uh, I you know if i if i change my hair would 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 he look at me in a different way um if my husband has grown tired of me i'm not married so my husband will never grow tired of me, whatever. but if my husband grows tired of me, if I change my hair, if I improve my skin, if I give myself, uh, you know, lash extensions, will he love me more? Will he love me again? I mean, these are all insecurities we face all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think you did a really beautiful job in the book, breaking down their culture not and not in a judgmental way but in a very observatory way of just taking it in this is how it is and I loved how curious you were and I loved the relationship that you ended up having with the servants because it gave you this incredibly inside perspective to how they live which so few of us will never get to experience and that just helps shine the light on it in a different way maybe it doesn't make you agree, but it helps you at least to an extent understand a little bit better.
1: I feel I was so lucky in that regard. I was so lucky to be a woman because the other chauffeurs were not invited up into the hotel rooms or into the, the private homes as I was. I had very intimate access early on. And I I listened and I watched and I asked questions. And because of that, I I was able to see and then also understand things that I would never have been able to do if I hadn't been allowed that intimate access, but they they also trusted me. And, um, I, I was careful to maintain that trust. Of course I did end up writing a book about it, but, (laughs) but, um, but I, I didn't use anybody's real names and, uh, and I, you know, I changed identifying characteristics, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about that, um, uh, about that, you felt you were in really in the story through me, through my eyes, and that was a real struggle for me when I was actually writing the book for Simon Schuster. I had already done versions of the story as a one-woman show, and then it won the 2010 New York International Film Festival. I'm um, sorry, uh, theater festival, as a play, and then I sold it to Simon Schuster as a nonfiction book. And as I was writing it, I. I was, in my mind, I was writing creative nonfiction, a first-person account of what I saw as I understood it. And my editor, and actually several editors, because that was right when the, this is 2012, 2013, right when the publishing world was really changing, I kept on losing editors, not for any fault of my own, but they were just moving on to other jobs or the, the departments changed, et cetera. So the original editor that even bought the book was not even at Simon & Schuster anymore. So, but the editor I ended up working the most with kept on saying to me, no, 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 no. Uh, this is not creative nonfiction. This is a memoir and you are the hero. You're the heroine or the shiro." Of this memoir, and I said, "No, no, 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 no! And I'm not. I'm not writing a memoir. <laughs> That's just weird. I'm not doing that. I'm. I'm writing. This is a creative nonfiction. I'm very clear about that. I know that this is what it looks like." And they said, "No, no, this is a memoir, and we have to know who you are, and we have to know how you feel, and we have to know as much about you as you're willing to share." And that was a really hard lesson to learn i I bucked up against it for months and 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 this is i I can tell you for anybody out there thinking about writing a nonfiction book if there's if it's at all looking like a memoir, embrace that as soon as you can hmm. it, it It doesn't have to be a memoir, a my, like my memoirs type of thing. I don't mean that. I mean, it's your story. You're the Shiro. Help people get on your surfboard so that they know what it's like to ride as you. Mm-hmm. And I worked really hard to make that happen. And I really appreciate that you felt that. Um, and I, I have heard that from other readers. And I had to learn how to do that. So if I could learn how to do that, anybody can learn how to do that. I think I've told um, you before, everybody has at least one book in them, if, mm, if, oh, if, if not that's more.
0: That's beautiful to hear, because <laughs> I hope so for myself. Yes,
1: I'm sure you do. And um, mm-hmm. and we, we, we have that ability, and it has to do with telling our own most intimate personal stories as much as we're comfortable with. Just um, as a caveat, my I have a lovely agent. And as, as Simon & sister was pushing, pushing, pushing for more me, more me, more, me, more. I started calling it, oh, I'm writing a me more. Uh, I gave her one chapter to read. And she said, I think it's very important that you've written this. And I appreciate it. It was very moving but you do not want this in the book. You will not want this in print. Mm. And she was so right. Because if I think about it now, (laughs) if if that had made it to Simon and Schuster, they would have made me use it, I'm sure. And I would have been uncomfortable always knowing that people were out there reading that very, very intimate chapter that I really don't want to think about anymore, ever, really.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And so, by the way, sometimes you have to write them and then take them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was good for me to write that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a, a very observant, wise editor who could – Yeah. Look at it and say, "I'm going to say for your sake, let's take this out, even though it might make the book sell." Even yeah, better.
1: well, although that was my agent actually that. Did oh, your agent, okay. That. If the editor had seen that, the editor would <laughs> said, "No, this stays, and we're putting this in." But my agent was um, super sensitive that way, and she already knew me well enough to know, yeah, this might be very sensational. This part of it, uh, but you, you don't, you're not going to be happy later.
0: Hmm. What? How long was it from the experience to actually writing the book?
1: Well, Simon Schuster um, doesn't like me to share specific dates, as you can imagine, yeah. because we try not to name exactly when things mm-hmm. happen. Sure, 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 sure. But let's just say that uh, I had the experience, and then not too long after that, I was writing a one woman show about it that then won, uh, that had a certain amount of acclaim. And then the book came out in basically 2013. So it like, let's say a span of five ish years. Mm
0: -hmm. What (laughs) did you have this like initial intuitive feeling? I have to write about this. It sounds like maybe the one woman show was something that intuitively came up for you.
1: Yes, because I, uh, I'm in the entertainment business and I would be driving, say, the Royal Hail Dresser to Palm Springs and I'd be alone in the parking lot at four in the morning drinking $10 espressos and thinking, okay, I just blew all the money I made tonight by those several espressos. But anyway, uh, and I would call my friends and tell them, wow, we just went ro- down Rodeo Drive with the princess, and they, they bought they bought like 50 handbags. Who does that? And my friends would say, are you writing this down? And I said, n- n- well, uh, yeah, kind of. No, no, are you writing this down? You have to write this down. You should be writing this down. So I eventually started to write it down. I brought my computer in the car, And I would start writing stuff exactly as it happened, as fresh as it could be. And then, so I had that material. And then I thought, well, because I'm an actor, I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to write a one woman show starring me. And it will be my only chance to play a middle-aged Saudi colonel, to play a 12-year-old Saudi princess, to play a Tunisian crazy-ass, nasty hairdresser, uh, so I could play all the parts that I would never be cast in in Hollywood, right? You know, we don't have that chance. We we get pigeonholed. We get, um, you know, we are very often, unless you're a huge superstar, but even then you can get pigeonholed. We don't necessarily have the choice to play all the roles that we know we're capable of playing. Now, of course, I would never be cast as a middle-aged Saudi colonel from the Saudi. You know Army, but I could capture his spirit and his intensity and his, his, his anger and, uh, and his, his also intrigue with me. So all of that I was able to put into the play. And then as I was crafting the play and I was workshopping it and performing it, and I was doing Q and As after the show. And I learned so much. People would say, Oh yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was was working for the FAA and, uh, and I was an airport controller and a Saudi plane came in with a Saudi uh, pilot and they refused to be, uh, talked in by a female FAA agent. And, So I was taken off that, and they put a man in, and then the union got involved, and there was this big brouhaha. And so I, I would never have known about that if I, of course, a, a Saudi man who's a pilot does not take instruction from a from a female FAA controller. They just don't. They won't. And. So that that just like kind of blew my mind, and then there, and then I met a bunch of security guys that had worked with a prince in Boston, and they said, "Oh yeah, we took over three four three floors of the Pierre Hotel, or rather three floors of the Taj Mahal in Boston, and we lived there for two years while the kid was in school in Boston." So oh my gosh Like so, it, it's happened to other people. It's not just me. So so I so I I I was able to use a lot of that, and then do research, and then so the. The 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 plays really helped. It helped not only to, but I enjoyed doing it. It was thrilling to be able to create the characters as the, as I remember them, but also to flesh out the stories and to figure out, okay, what was really going on, and what was happening, and mm-hmm. what was the history behind that, and how did that arrive to the, to that place. So so then once I started working on the show, somebody must have said to me, but the be honest with you, I don't recall. Somebody must have said, this would be a great book. And I decided right before I went to New York, I had a few weeks. I decided I was going to write a nonfiction book proposal and try to sell it. Or rather, try to get an agent and then try to sell that book. And I had a couple of people, the friends that that helped me. One is Mike Rose, who is a professor at UCLA. And he would answer my calls in the middle of the night. You know, he really, he was just fantastic. And I crafted a book proposal, had it in my hand when I flew to New York to do the New York Fringe Festival. I got an agent within a day or two. Uh, I had my pick of agents, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. And then it was sold to Simon Schuster within a couple of months at auction. So I got an advance to write the book. And then it was just high f- flying from there on. Uh, wow. I-, I got lucky. The book did really well. I was featured in People Magazine. I did all kinds of uh, radio programs. It was a New York Times bestseller. And mm. now I'm trying to, or I have been for some time trying to make it into a TV show, but it has not sold.
0: Oh my, are you kidding me? That sounds amazing. It has not sold. From from the perspective of the female chauffeur. Exactly. That could...
1: But oh, it gosh. has not sold. And I think Hollywood is scared of Saudis. Yeah.
0: They, which is, yeah. Makes sense. I yeah.
1: know. I really, but I, I'm glad that you get it. It's like the female chauffeur, like behind the Tinseltown curtain, or in this mm-hmm. case, behind the abaya and the hijab, like what's going on back there? And yeah. it's also, it's a story about the have and have nots and and the upstairs, downstairs, as you know. But-
0: mm. Well, I love that you said that as a woman, you had such a different perspective because that was one of the things that threw out there was sort of this duality to being the woman. Number one, you're looked down upon. You're not treated right. You're not paid nearly what the men were being paid. Exactly. But when you look at big picture, you left with no money compared to what the men made, but you left with lifelong experiences and memories. They left with money that's now gone. Right.
1: You're absolutely right. Because I really, then that parlayed into a whole series of other things that also be, Made me a writer. Uh, mm. I, I really I was not a writer before that. I was a reader. I hadn't really even written. I'd written another one woman show that did very well, but that was just really about my own experience as a woman and about sexuality and about family and and this. but this, but writing a show about my experience, based on my real life experience was something I've never done before. And then also to then make it into a book. And then now it's been a couple different iterations as a pilot and a film. Although again, lots of smoke, no fire it hasn't sold. But now of course I've written, uh, I've been working on a novel, which um, I- I'm very hopeful will sell. And now I'm working on another nonfiction book about my work as a CASA, um, people haven't heard that expression but very often, and I hadn't either, but it means I'm a court-appointed special advocate for a child in foster care.